Welcome to Come Follow Me with David Ridges. My name's Casey Paul Griffiths, and I'm going to be your guest host and teacher for the week of February 8th to 14th. And we're going to be covering sections 12 through 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants, along with Joseph Smith History, verses 66 to 75. I'm the author of 50 Relics of the Restoration, and I teach religion for a living, and I'm excited to go through these sections with you. So let's dive right in. The main story in sections 12 through 13 is the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood through John the Baptist. However, in order to understand that event, you need to know a little bit about what was going on at the time when the angel appeared to Joseph and Oliver Cowdery. So let's go first to section 12 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, Section 12 and section 13 take place uh, during a flurry of activity when Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery are working on the translation of the Book of Mormon. There's a lull after Joseph Smith loses the manuscript to the Book of Mormon in the summer of 1828, and there's a couple months where not very much happens, but then in April of 1829, Oliver Cowdery shows up and things really start to move. The entire Book of Mormon is going to be translated during April, May, and June of 1829, and these two are so focused on the translation, they don't really have time to do much else. There's even indications that they didn't have time to go out and get food or shop, and so they depended on other people to help them while they were completing the translation. And one of the key figures during this time that assists them is a man named Joseph Knight Sr. Uh, Joseph Knight uh, meets Joseph Smith first in 1826 when Joseph comes to the area working with another man named Josiah Stoll to try and find a silver mine. Uh, Joseph Knight is immediately impressed with Joseph Smith and really, really uh, takes to him and believes strongly that he has prophetic gifts. One of the most valuable early histories of the church from this time is written by Joseph Knight, and his son, Newell Knight, also writes a history. One of the things that Newell Knight recorded was that his father hired many hands. In fact, he said, in 1826, he hired Joseph Smith. Joseph and I worked together and slept together. My father said Joseph was the best hand he ever hired. We found him a boy of truth. He was about 21 years of age. In fact, during this time, Father Knight is even instrumental in having Joseph and Emma Smith meet and fall in love. Father Knight is the person that loans Joseph Smith his sleigh to go down to Harmony where Emma is living and for them to continue their courtship. And Father Knight becomes one of the early confidants that Joseph Smith shares his visions with and his prophetic mission. In fact, uh, Newell Knight later records that he and his father were told in secret. He said Joseph Smith explained his prophetic mission to them, and they're two older Knight brothers that don't believe in Joseph Smith's mission, but Newell Knight records, my father and I believed what he told us, and I think we were the first after his father's family, meaning the Knights are the first family that really come into the restoration circle after Joseph Smith's own family. Now, during the Book of Mormon translation, Joseph Smith is far away from his family. He's living in Harmony, Pennsylvania, about 150 50 miles away from where he grew up and where his family currently is. But during this time, members of his family visit. For instance, uh, Hiram Smith comes to visit. That's when Doctrine and Covenants 11 is received. And Father Knight, who's in Colesville, just a few miles up the road, is really doing everything he can to try and take care of Joseph Smith and his system. So while Joseph Smith is really discouraged after he loses the manuscript, Father Knight brings him some paper, which was actually a, a luxury back then. Paper was really difficult and expensive to come by. And that spurs Joseph Smith to start 
start again. Uh, in Father Knight's autobiographical sketch, he writes, I often went to see Joseph and carried him something to live upon. So sometimes the knights would bring him food and make sure that he was okay. And it's during one of these incidences where Joseph and Oliver have been so busy translating that they realize they don't have any food in the house, so they leave to go see Father Knight. Uh, but Father Knight's not home, so they come back when uh, Joseph Knight finds out that Oliver and Joseph drop by to visit him. He actually travels down to Harmony, Pennsylvania, and that's when we believe Section 12 of the Doctrine and Covenants was given. Section 12 is a revelation given directly to Joseph Knight, and it, it contains a lot of the same language that's in earlier revelations given to people that are calling them to work. So you'll see phrases here that you find in DNC 4 when Joseph Smith's father received a revelation, or in DNC 11 where Hiram Smith received a revelation where the Lord kind of gives this, this common call for everyone to engage in the work where he says, uh, verse 1, a great and marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. Behold, I am God, give heed to my word, which is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, to the dividing asunder of both joints and marrow, therefore give heed to my word. The field is white, all ready to harvest. This brings Joseph Knight Sr. In, into the circle of people that have been called to preach the word. Now, keep in mind that we're still over a year away from the restoration of the church itself, but the Knights are going to be central in creating what basically is one of the most important branches of the early church. The early church really is branches, but you could think of it just as three families. When it comes down to it during this time, the church consists of Joseph Smith's own family, which is in Palmyra, New York. Uh, the Whitmer family, which lives in Fayette, New York, about 30 miles away from Palmyra. And then the Knight family, which lives in Colesville, over 150 miles away from both those locations. The Knights become the nucleus of the Colesville branch, and the Colesville branch is all throughout the history of the church. The members of this branch, for the most part, stay faithful to the church and go with Joseph Smith and the Lord wherever they ask him to go. So a few months after the church is organized, for instance, the Lord instructs all the members of the church in New York to relocate to Kirtland. The Colesville branch travels all the way, sells all their farms, everything that they own, and travels to Kirtland, expecting to be taken care of by the saints in Kirtland when they get there. When they get there, unfortunately, a man named Lehman Copley, who withdrew from the law of consecration, forces the Colesville saints to get off his land, and the Lord gives a revelation, now section 54 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that instructs them to continue on to Missouri. When they get to Missouri, they enjoy relative peace for a year or two, and then they're involved in the persecutions that forced the saints out of Jackson County, then out of Clay County, then out of Caldwell County into Nauvoo. All along the way, the Colesville branch, who at its very heart is the Knight family, is there. And Joseph Knight, the patriarch of the Knight family, is the one that kind of holds them all together. Uh, one historian, Larry Porter, wrote, from the very inception of Mormonism, his word, uh, the saints comprising the cultural branch links their, link their lives inexorably with the restored gospel. They relinquish family, friends, homes, and material comforts in pursuit of their testimonies. And it's probably not far-fetched to say that if you've been a fan of um, the Work in the Glory, Gerald Lund's historical series. The the family at the center of the Work in the Glory is named the Steeds, but the Steeds in a lot of ways are based on 
the Knight family, on Joseph Knight's family. So when we're talking about Father Steed and the work of the glory, we're really talking about Joseph Knight. It's kind of a thinly veiled historical allegory so that Gerald Lund could take them different places. But most of the stuff that happens to the Steed and those Steeds in those historical novels happen to the Knights as they travel along. The Lord commends uh, Joseph Knight Sr. for the assistance he's given and then gives him this counsel. No one can assist in this work except he shall be humble, and full of love, having faith, hope, charity, being tempered in all things, whatsoever shall be entrusted to his care. And to the end of his life, Joseph Knight is a faithful friend and supporter of Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith loves the Knight family. The Knight family love Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith actually introduces the concept of eternal marriage to Newell Knight, Joseph Knight's uh, son that stays faithful to the church. In fact, 13 years after section 12 of the Doctrine and Covenants is given, Joseph Smith, uh, who's in exile because he's, he's, they're trying to arrest him and extradite him back to Missouri, sits down and writes this book where he commends all the people that have assisted and helped him along the way. This is what he, he writes about Joseph Knight Sr. He says, while I contemplate the virtues and good qualifications and characteristics of the faithful few, which I am now recording in the book of the law of the Lord, such as have stood by me in every hour of peril for these 15 long years past, say, for instance, and this is the first person he mentions, my beloved brother, Joseph Knight Sr., who was among the number of the first to administer to my necessities while I was laboring in the commencement of the bringing forth of the work of the Lord and of laying the foundation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. For 15 years he has he been faithful and true, even-handed and exemplary and virtuous and kind, never deviating to the right hand nor to the left. Behold, he is a righteous man. May God Almighty lengthen out the old man's days and may his trembling, tortured, and broken body be renewed and the vigor of health turn upon him. If it can be thy will consistently, O God, it shall be said of him by the sons of Zion, while there is one of them yet remaining, that this man was a faithful man in Israel. Therefore his name shall never be forgotten. Joseph Smith wrote that on the 23rd of August, 1842, and you can find it at the Joseph Smith paper site. Just to kind of cap off the story, uh, Joseph Knight Sr., Newell Knight and the rest of the Knight family make it to Nauvoo. They cross the plains. And Father Knight actually dies at Mount Pisgah in Iowa. He's one of the many people uh, that died during the trek across Iowa. We also lose his son, Newell Knight, during this time. But the Knight family remains in the church and becomes important. In fact, uh, during the early 20th century, when the church is having a lot of financial difficulties, Jesse Knight, who's a descendant of the Knight family, uh, puts forth some money that allows the church to remain solvent until they're able to uh, pay off their debts and, and continue the work of the Lord. So section 12 is kind of our, our introduction to the Knight family who are going to show up again and again in the narrative uh, of the Doctrine and Covenants and be very, very important to the story as things move forward. Now with that as context, let's jump to Joseph Smith history and talk a little bit about the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood. Section 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants is really just an excerpt from an 1838 history that Joseph Smith writes uh, to explain the experiences that he's had so far. It's the words that the angel, uh, John the Baptist, speaks to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, but it's better to understand this in 
context uh, with Joseph Smith kind of explaining what happened in and around the events that took place. So if you turn to Joseph Smith history and the Pearl of Great Price, we're going to go to verse 66. And Joseph Smith here starts uh, by noting that Oliver Cowdery comes to his house and that the two of them begin translating. Now, after Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery is probably the most important witness we have of the process of translation. And Oliver, while he, he has difficulties with the church, Oliver's excommunicated in 1838. He does come back to the church a decade later. One thing that's wonderful about Oliver is that he never wavers in his witness of the things that happen in and around Harmony, Pennsylvania, like the visitation of John the Baptist. For instance, um, Oliver records his experiences. He actually writes down the experience with John the Baptist before Joseph Smith does. Oliver writes about it in a letter uh, published in, in 1835. And even while Oliver is outside the church, after he has been excommunicated, he still stays true to his witness of what happened here. For instance, in 1846, he writes a letter to his friend and brother-in-law, Phineas Young. And you might remember, Phineas Young is Brigham Young's brother. He's also married Oliver's half-sister, Lucy. And in this, he bears his testimony. He talks about um, the angel appearing to them. When Oliver comes back to the church in 1848, he's invited by the Apostle Orson Hyde to bear his testimony in a meeting. In the middle of this meeting, a guy named Reuben Miller writes down his testimony, and Oliver says directly, yes, the angel appeared to me. John the Baptist bestowed upon us the Aaronic priesthood. He says, I was also present when Peter, James, and John uh, can." appeared and and gave us the priesthood as well. So Joseph Smith mentions this in in his history. In verse 68, Joseph Smith says, while we continued the work of translation in the ensuing month, May, that's May 1829, we on a certain day went into the woods to pray and inquire the Lord respecting baptism for the remission of sins that we found mentioned in translation of the plates. Now, Oliver is a little bit more specific in his 1834 account. Here's what he says. He says, after writing the account of the Savior's ministry to the remnant of the seed of Jacob upon this continent, it was easily to be seen, as the prophet said would be, that darkness covered the earth and gross darkness the minds of the people. Upon reflecting further, it was easy to be seen that amid the great strife and noise concerning religion, none had authority to administer in the name of Christ. Now, it's difficult to know exactly where Oliver and Joseph were translating when this particular issue comes up, but Oliver says it was during the Savior's ministry to the Nephites, which means they were probably in 3rd Nephi. And there's a passage in 3rd Nephi 11 verses 21 to 23 where the Savior specifically instructs the Nephite disciples to baptize people but tells them they need authority to do so. So Joseph Smith in Joseph Smith history records that while they were praying they they leave the cabin in Harmony, Pennsylvania where they're translating and go into the woods to pray. Joseph Smith says while we were thus employed Praying and calling upon the Lord, a messenger from heaven descended in a cloud of light and laid his hands upon us. And he ordained us, saying, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And this shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do again uh, uh, do do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. Now, what I just read to you from Joseph Smith history is cut out and becomes section 13 
of the Doctrine and Covenants. Joseph Smith in his history further goes on to say that the angel said this ironic priesthood had not the power of laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, but that this should be conferred upon us hereafter. And he commanded us to go and be baptized and gave us directions that I should baptize Oliver Cowdery and that afterwards he should baptize me. Now, Oliver offers a slightly different account of what the angel had to say, but the two accounts agree in, in all the major particulars. So Oliver's writing in 1834, Joseph is writing in 1838. Uh, Joseph is the person whose, whose writings are selected and canonized and put in the Doctrine and Covenants. But Oliver records the angel saying, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer this priesthood and this authority, which shall remain on the earth, that the sons of Levi may yet offer an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. It, Oliver refers to the priesthood and the authority and the priesthood of Aaron and specifies also, along with Joseph, that all, that John the Baptist was the person that restored this. Now, in 1846, when Oliver writes to Phineas Young, uh, this is again after he's been excommunicated, he's even more specific. In fact, one of the things that Oliver is sensitive about coming back into the church, because that's kind of what's happening in 1846, is Oliver is uh, thinking about coming back, rejoining the church. He writes to Phineas Young and says, I know I've been sensitive about his reputation. He says, but I, I ought to have been so. Quote, you would be under the circumstances had you stood in the presence of John with our dear departed brother Joseph to receive the lesser priesthood. When Oliver actually comes back to the church, a guy named Reuben Miller writes down Oliver's testimony that he gives at winter quarters. And Oliver stands up and says, quote, I was also present with Joseph when a holy angel from God came down from heaven and conferred on us or restored the lesser or ironic priesthood and said to us at the same time that it should remain upon the earth while the earth stands. Now there's one more interview recorded in the last few months of Oliver Cowdery's life. A man named Samuel W. w. Richards, who's a church member, sits down with Oliver and records Oliver telling him specifically that he had been in the presence of John the Baptist who held the keys of the Aaronic priesthood and Oliver saying that both the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthoods, quote, with their authority are now and must continue to be in the body of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So Joseph and Oliver, the two witnesses of this event, are both completely simpatico in saying, we prayed, an angel came to us, the angel gave us the authority of the priesthood, and the angel commanded us to baptize each other. Whether Oliver's inside the church or outside the church, that story remains absolutely consistent with what Joseph Smith teaches, and both of them bear witness that that is true to the end of their life. So the Aaronic Priesthood is a pretty straightforward story. It's restoration is at any rate. It happens on May 15th, 1829, somewhere near uh, Harmony, Pennsylvania, in close proximity to the cabin. And we know the exact location of the cabin um, where they were translating the Book of Mormon. Now with the historical events established, let's talk a little bit about uh, what the angel actually said to them. So again, this you can find in Joseph Smith history, or you can go to section 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that short little section that records the words that the angel spoke to Joseph and Oliver um, 
when he bestowed upon them the Aaronic priesthood. So a couple things. Um, Joseph and Oliver both mentioned that the angel addresses them as my fellow servants. This mirrors the introduction uh, that an angel gives speaking to John in the book of Revelation. The angel appears and says, I am your fellow servant. Don't see me as greater or lesser than you. I'm a, a fellow servant. When the Savior appears, he usually says something a little bit different because he is on a little bit higher level. But what's significant here is that the angel then goes further to introduce himself and says that he is the man who was known as John the Baptist in the New Testament. This is the man who baptizes Jesus Christ. And you remember Jesus travels all the way from his home in Nazareth to Bethabara, where John the Baptist is performing baptisms because it's that important for him to uh, receive a baptism by a person that has proper authority. Now, a millennia later, that same person that baptized Jesus Christ has been sent back to the earth, he says, under the direction of Peter, James, and John to restore the keys of the Aaronic priesthood. Now, one of the keys associated with the Aaronic priesthood is the key of the ministering of angels. So let's talk a little bit about what that means. The Hebrew and Greek words that are translated as angel both in the Old and New Testament, could be translated as messenger, and at times referred to both human and heavenly messenger. Joseph Smith, later on in section 129 of the Doctrine and Covenants, is going to teach that angels of glory can be the spirits of just men made perfect who haven't been resurrected, or they can be resurrected beings of flesh and bone. We're assuming because John the Baptist had physicality and he placed his hands directly on both Joseph and Oliver's heads that he's a resurrected person at this point. It's also possible that premoral spirits can serve as angels as well. The Savior, on several occasions, we're talking uh, when he speaks to the brother of Jared in Ether chapter 3, or when he visits with Jacob in Genesis 32, or when he speaks to Moses in Exodus 33, is acting as a messenger and therefore as an angel. So a premortal spirit can act as an angel too. Uh, even today, when holders of the Aaronic priesthood are asked by those in authority to serve as ministers, they're effectively serving as ministering angels. In fact, one interesting tie into this is that when the ministering program was introduced, it was said that they were also going to have young women, ages 14 and older, act as ministers. Now, that's not the same thing as ordaining them to offices within the Aaronic Priesthood, but we are giving them authority to go forth and minister to people uh, using the authority that's been given to them by God. Now, the next thing that John the Baptist said the Aaronic priesthood held the keys of were the keys of the gospel of repentance and baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. So a lot of the things that we do to repent within the church are tied back directly to the Aaronic priesthood and the authority that's given to it. It's pretty extraordinary to think that we give this authority to, to people that could be as young as 11 years old, that we put our repentance in the hands of someone who's who's very very young and inexperienced and yet we can't discount the importance that these deacons and teachers and priests play in helping us go through the process of repentance uh, a priest for instance could go to the temple and perform a baptism or even outside the temple uh, initiate someone into the church by performing the ordinance of baptism and these are all really really important things in fact president dallin h oaks uh specifically spoke about the keys of repentance in relation to the Aaronic priesthood. He said, quote, What does it mean that the Aaronic priesthood holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and baptism and the remission of sins? 
The meaning is found in the ordinance of baptism and in the sacrament. Baptism is for the remission of sins, and the sacrament is renewal of the covenants and blessings of baptism. Both should be preceded by repentance. When we keep the covenants made in these ordinances, we are promised that we will always have a spirit to be with us. The ministering of angels is one of the manifestations of that spirit, end quote. So if you think about it, um, repentance is an action that we take to be better, to, to change the way of our life, to stop engaging in the sinful behaviors that we sometimes engage in. Forgiveness comes through the ordinances of the gospel. So for instance, when a person gets baptized, they've received forgiveness. I remember after I got baptized when I was eight, my parents saying to me, you are now the most sinless person in this room. You are the most perfect person. And I remember at the time, my sister, who was a few years older than me and kind of liked to torture me a little bit, uh, started to tease me and make me angry. And I lost my temper and I called her stupid or something like that. And my sister immediately started to laugh and said, ha ha, you're not perfect anymore. You just sinned. And I remember being a little bit dejected and saying, oh my gosh, I couldn't even make it an hour without sinning. How am I ever going to make it through my lifetime? Well, that was a misnomer. Baptism does absolve us of our sins. We receive forgiveness. Our sins are washed away through the ordinance. But the second ordinance that the Aaronic priesthood really takes responsibility for, the sacrament does the same thing. So it wasn't like I got to start over once when I was baptized. It's like every Sunday when I take the opportunity to take the sacrament, I'm starting over again. I'm renewing those covenants that I've made. And for those few moments after I've taken the sacrament, again, all my sins are washed away and the Lord's promised that we can have his spirit to be with us, that I can have the ministering of angels or I can act as a ministering angel. Uh, angel in my capacity as a priesthood holder within the church. Every member of the church, male or female, uh, has access to those blessings that you'll have your sins forgiven you and that you'll have the blessing of the ministering of angels, or you could be asked to act as a ministering brother or sister or be a ministering angel to someone else. So don't downplay the ironic priesthood. I know a lot of times we like to talk about it like it's the training priesthood, and that really is the way that it's worked in the church. But just to kind of underline this, a bishop is an office in the Aaronic priesthood. The person that presides over the ward is both the bishop and the presiding high priest. And the Aaronic priesthood later on in the Doctrine and Covenants is going to be defined as encompassing a number of important roles, including taking care of the temporal needs of the members of the church. When we have someone who, who needs service, who needs assistance, even if it's something as great as they, they need temporal assistance, they need they need uh, assistance in keeping their house, they go to a holder of the Aaronic Priesthood, a bishop, or we send holders of the Aaronic Priesthood, whether that's priests, teachers, and deacons, to help and assist them temporally to get the things that they need to just literally survive. We should also note, too, that later on the Savior is going to say that the Aaronic Priesthood and the Melchizedek Priesthood are just facets of the priesthood of God, the authority of Jesus Christ. So when we give priesthood authority to a young man, we are giving them the authority of Jesus Christ. The Aaronic Priesthood might be the lesser priesthood, but that doesn't mean that it isn't absolutely critically important to the church the way we function and the way that we help people and make the world a better place. Now, maybe the most mysterious part of section 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants comes 
When John the Baptist um, also says this, in section 13, Joseph Smith records that the angel said, This, the, meaning the Aaronic priesthood, shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. Now, all kinds of people have speculated about what this means. And there's a tie into the Old Testament here, because in the Old Testament, under under the law of Moses, the priesthood that most people used and held was Aaronic priesthood. And among the tribes of Israel, the Levites were specifically given the right and authority to hold the priesthood. There's exceptions to this. For instance, Joshua serves as a prophet. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. But for the most part, people that hold the priesthood in the Old Testament dispensation are Levites. They're descendants of the the tribe of Levi. And because of this, sometimes the Aaronic priesthood is called the Levitical priesthood. There's subtle differences between the two, but for the most part, they encompasses the same power. Now, when Joseph Smith um, later on spoke about the authority that the Levites held, in fact, this is in an 1840 discourse that he, he gives in Nauvoo, he starts to speak about the way that in the Old Testament, a Levite priest would offer a sacrifice, for instance, in the tabernacle of Moses. Joseph Smith, in speaking about the restoration of the gospel, says specifically in this discourse, quote, these sacrifices, as well as every ordinance belonging to the priesthood, will, when the temple of the Lord shall be built, and the sons of Levi be purified, be fully restored and attended to in all their power, ramifications, and blessings. This ever did and will exist when the powers of the Melchizedek priesthood are sufficiently manifest. How else can the restitution of all things be spoken of by all the holy prophets and be brought to pass? Now, you might be asking yourself, wait, does that mean that we're going to perform animal sacrifices? sacrifices in the temples today, just like they did anciently. Well, probably not. And you'll note that we haven't done that so far. Uh, when Joseph Smith was giving that discourse, they had already built one temple that they had lost custody of, and they were in the midst of building a second temple, which would be constructed in Nauvoo. What Joseph Smith is probably referring to here is a temple that's going to be built in Jerusalem. The Old Testament prophets, for instance, Ezekiel, talk at length about this temple, and it's possible that this is the location where these sacrifices that the Levites practice do come back, probably not permanently, but as part of the restitution, the restoration of all things in the last days, these could come back. For instance, President Joseph Fielding Smith taught, quote, provision will be made for some ceremonies and ordinances which may be performed by the Aaronic priesthood and a place provided where the sons of Levi may make their offering in righteousness. President Smith also suggested that, quote, the law of sacrifice will have to be restored or that all things which were decreed by the Lord would not be restored. So, President Joseph Fielding Smith is saying basically that temporarily these sacrifices might have to be brought back to fulfill all things. And temporarily is the thing that we would underline here. President Smith said, quote, blood sacrifices will be performed long enough to complete the fullness of the restoration of this dispensation. But afterwards, that sacrifice will be of some other character, unquote. Now, what other character are we talking about? Well, the Book of Mormon actually points this out. The reason why we don't do sacrifices, blood sacrifices in temples today is because the Savior himself changes the law after his atonement. In 3 Nephi chapter 9, 
9, verse 20, the Savior instructed the Nephites and Lamanites specifically to offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So do sacrifices still happen in temples today? Absolutely. Are they blood sacrifices? No, absolutely not. They are the sacrifices of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. If there ever are blood sacrifices offered again, it will be just as a token sacrifice to signify that all things have been brought back and everything's been restored. But after that, like President Joseph Fielding Smith said, the sacrifices will take on another character, which will undoubtedly be the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now, another thing that has sometimes um, bothered people about section 13 is the statement that this authority, the Aaronic priesthood, will never be taken until the sons of Levi give their offering. Now that shouldn't imply that the Aaronic priesthood is only going to be around until the sons of Levi get their act together, join the church, and carry out this offering that has been given. Oliver Cowdery was a was a was a vocal proponent of the idea that the authority would not be taken away. For instance, in his history in 1834, instead of writing until the sons of Levi, he wrote, This authority which shall remain upon the earth that the sons of Levi may yet offer an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. So Oliver's understanding of what the angel said wasn't that the authority was just here to get the sons of Levi in order and then it would be taken away, but that it was here to facilitate the sons of Levi getting their act together and carrying out the sacrifices that they've been asked to carry out. This seems to imply that the return of the sons of Levi would not take away the priesthood, but that the priesthood was restored to bring back the sons of Levi and give them the authority that they needed to um, come back into the church and assist in the restoration of all things. In fact, near the end of his life, after Oliver rejoins the church, Oliver kind of underlines this. According to Reuben Miller, Oliver said, quote, that at the same time, the Aaronic priesthood would remain on earth as long as the earth stands, unquote. Now, later on in his life, Joseph Smith actually takes this prophecy uh, about the sons of Levi and connects it with another prophecy that Malachi made in the Old Testament, where Malachi started speaking about, this is in Malachi 3, chapter 2 through 3, that there had to be an offering made by the sons of Levi in the latter days. Joseph Smith had received instructions by this point to build a temple in the city of Zion, to build temples in Kirtland. In, in Nauvoo and to continue building temples just like we as a church are doing right now, over 150 temples on the earth right now. Joseph Smith quoted this prophecy about the sons of Levi, which is not only found in Malachi, the Savior repeats it in 3 Nephi chapter 24 verses 2 through 3 and then admonished the saints, quote, that as a church and as a people and as Latter-day Saints, we must offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. And let us present in his holy temple, when it's finished, a book containing the records of our dead, which will be worthy of all acceptation. That's Doctrine and Covenants, section 128, verse 24, end of quote. So it's possible that the offering, too, isn't just a broken heart and a contrite spirit, but it's that those ordinances that are performed in the temple will allow us to present to the Lord the names of all the people that we've opened the doors of salvation to. It's pretty significant to think also that when we give a young man the ironic priesthood, we give them the authority to go to the temple and perform ordinances on behalf of people that are deceased. A young man or a young woman of that age goes to the temple and acts as proxy, or a young man can perform the ordinances. You guys might remember, uh, it was just a couple of years ago in um, January of 2018, 
almost immediately after um, Russell M. Nelson became president of the church, that President Nelson and the leaders of the church sent out a directive that baptisms for the dead, which to that point had only been performed by Melchizedek priests and holders in the temple, could also be performed by ironic priesthood holders. Uh, my word has a great tradition of going to the temple, and I loved getting into the font and uh, performing those baptisms. But ever since January of 2018, I haven't been in the font, even though our word continued to go to the temple uh, every month until the temples were shut down because of the pandemic. Uh, we we allowed the ironic priesthood holders, the priests in our word, to perform those ordinances. I got to see my own son, who's a 16-year-old, uh, perform a baptism. He even baptized his his older sister on behalf of them. And that is really, really powerful that these offerings that the holders of the Aaronic priesthood um, make are a broken heart and a contrite spirit, but also the, the hours of work that we put in to compile family history and get names to the temple. And then when we're in the temple, perform these ordinances are all part of what starts when John the Baptist restores the keys of the Aaronic priesthood. Now, another peculiarity here is that um, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery both write that they were instructed to baptize each other after John the Baptist gave them the priesthood. Sounds weird. If you've got John the Baptist there, why would you have? Why wouldn't you have him perform the baptism? Uh, after you're done. Uh, But Joseph Smith says specifically, this is in verse 71 of Joseph Smith history. Accordingly, we went and were baptized. I baptized him, Oliver Cowdery first. And afterwards he baptized me after which I laid my hands upon his head and ordained him to the Aaronic priesthood. And afterwards he laid his hands on me and ordained me to the same priesthood for so were we commanded. So this is going to sound a little out of order, but the angel gives them the authority of the Aaronic priesthood, then directs them to baptize each other, then directs them to ordain each other to the priesthood. That's not the order that we do it in today. Today we would baptize a person first and then we would um, ordain them, and at the same time we ordain them, give them the authority of the Aaronic priesthood. But it happens a little bit differently in Joseph Smith's time because, one, there's not a church. They don't have anybody that they can go to and receive baptism from. And two, uh, they have to have the authority before they can baptize, and they have to be baptized before they can ordain each other. In fact, um, Sidney B. Sperry, this, this great teacher at BYU, he reasoned that the reason why Joseph and Oliver performed the ordinance for each other rather than asking John the Baptist to perform the ordinance is that, quote, baptism like marriage is an earthly ordinance and must be performed by mortal men having their proper authority. The heavenly messenger gave Joseph Smith and Oliver the proper authority and then commanded them to baptize each other and set the proper example among men from that time forward, end quote. You'll notice a precedent for this in the Book of Mormon. The Savior in his resurrected glorified state gives the power to baptize his disciples, but he does not baptize them. Later in 3 Nephi 19 verses 10 through 13, the disciples baptize each other and the Holy Ghost descends upon them as it does on Joseph and Oliver following their baptism. So the pattern that Joseph and Oliver follow here is really established in the Book of Mormon where they receive the authority, they perform the baptisms, and then later on they're ordained to offices within the Aaronic priesthood. And a year later when the church is organized, by then Joseph and Oliver hold the Melchizedek priesthood 
uh, and also start ordaining men to offices in the Aaronic priesthood, like priest, teacher, deacon. The office of bishop is going to be revealed a little bit later on in uh, section 41 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, another thing that's worthwhile to know during this time is, is the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood most likely happened in or around this same time and same location. Now, with the Aaronic priesthood, everything's pretty much cut and dried. We know the exact date, we know the approximate location, and we have extensive details about what happened, right down to the wording that the messenger gives them when he restores the Aaronic priesthood. The Melchizedek priesthood is a little bit uh, tougher. We don't know the exact date. We know the approximate location. Uh, later on, in section 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith, who's writing this in 1842, about 13 years later, speaks of the voice of Peter, James, and John in the wilderness between Harmony, Susquehanna County, and Colesville, Broome County, on the Susquehanna River, declaring themselves as possessors of the keys of the kingdom and the dispensation of the fullness of times. This verse appears to give us the approximate location and maybe an approximate time of the restoration because Joseph and Oliver leave Harmony in June 1829 to move to Fayette, New York, where they completed the translation of the company of the Whitmer family. So the traditional date and location of the uh, restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood is that it must have happened sometime after the 15th of May, 1829, when John the Baptist gives them the Aaronic priesthood and early June of 1829, when Joseph and Oliver leave the area and go to meet uh, with the Whitmers in Fayette. There's other interpretations too. Uh, some people think that the Savior bestowed the Melchizedek priesthood upon them because Joseph Smith writes about that in his history. In section 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord specifically speaks of, uh, quote, Peter, James, and John, whom I've sent unto you, by whom I've ordained you, and confirmed to be apostles, a special witnesses of my name to bear the keys of your ministry. Now this verse is given about a year later after the church has been organized in 1830. So we know for sure by then that Peter, James, and John had appeared and given Joseph Smith uh, keys and authority necessary to carry out the church. The church has also been organized. And at a certain point, the Lord is involved in the restoration of this priesthood. In Joseph Smith's own history, he says specifically, quote, we now became anxious to have the promise realized to us, which the angel conferred upon the Aaronic priesthood has given us, that if we continued faithful, we should also have the Melchizedek priesthood, which hold the authority on the laying out of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. He continues, we had for some time made this the subject a matter of humble prayer. At length, we got together in the chamber of Father Whitmer, and we had not long been engaged in solemn and fervent prayer, when the word of the Lord came unto us in the chamber, commanding us that I should ordain Oliver Cowdery to be an elder of the Church of Jesus Christ, and that he should ordain me to the same office. Joseph and Oliver put off ordaining others until the church was organized, but it seems like the most likely sequence is that John the Baptist restores the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood on the 15th of May, then sometime between then and the move to Fayette, Joseph and Oliver meet with Peter, James, and John and receive the Melchizedek priesthood. Then when they get to Fayette in the chamber of Father Whitmer, the voice of God speaks to them and commands them to ordain each other to the priesthood. Now, again, we don't know the exact date and time, and no one here is saying that um, they don't have the Melchizedek priesthood. We just don't know the exact details of it. Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery both mentioned that Peter, James, and John are involved and that they meet with Peter, James, and John. In 1839, Joseph Smith thought, how have we come at the priests in the last days? They came down in regular succession. Peter, James, and John 
had given it to them as they gave it to others. Oliver, in his 1846 letter to Phineas Young, testifies that he had stood in the presence of Peter to receive the greater priesthood, and in 1848 he says, quote, I was also present with Joseph that the um, when the higher or Melchizedek priesthood was conferred by angels on, on high. Now, this has also been testified of by modern prophets. You might remember back in April of 2020, the Restoration Proclamation was issued, and part of that was that the First President of the Twelve said, quote, We affirm that under the direction of the Father and Son, heavenly messengers came to instruct Joseph to reestablish the Church of Jesus Christ. The resurrected John the Baptist restored the authority to baptize by immersion for the remission of sins. Three of the original Twelve Apostles, Peter, James, and John, restored the apostleship and keys of priesthood authority. So, the priesthood is restored somewhere around this time. We've got to get the priesthood in place before the Church is reorganized. And Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery both note that this changes them, that they were baptized and hadn't quite yet received the gift of the Holy Ghost. That comes a little bit later when they get the Melchizedek priesthood. But Joseph writes in verse 74 of Joseph Smith history, our, now, our minds now being enlightened, we begin to have the scriptures laid open to our understanding. And the true meaning and intention of their more mysterious passages revealed unto us in a manner which we could never attain to previously, nor ever before had thought of. In the meantime, we are forced to keep secret the circumstances of having received the priesthood and having been baptized owing to a spirit of persecution already manifests itself in the neighborhood. Both Joseph and Oliver say that after this experience with the angel happens on the 15th of May, 1829, they're able to have the scriptures open to them. And I would point out one thing. While it's incredibly valuable to use scholastic and academic tools to understand the scriptures, to, to listen to podcasts uh, and, and get insights from other teachers, the most valuable uh, tool in understanding the scriptures is the Holy Ghost. In a discourse Joseph Smith gives near the end of his life, he speaks about the power of the Holy Ghost and says, quote, I thank God I've got this book and I thank him more for the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost within me comprehends more than all the world. So amazing things happen here. Section 13, section 12 are both very, very short excerpts of the Doctrine and Covenants, but please don't overlook them. If you're the person that works with young people, both young men and young women, take time to point out the keys and authorities of the Aaronic Priesthood and the powers that we bestow upon young men, some young men as young as 11 years old, that it gives them the power to assist people in receiving repentance, in receiving forgiveness and remission of their sins, and in also experiencing the ministering of angels and acting as ministering angels themselves. I bear you my testimony that the priesthood has been restored in the latter days, that the Lord sent these angels of glory, these prophets from the New Testament, to bring back all things in order to commit his work and to bring it forth in the latter days. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.